You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Ken Kukier, who is senior editor at The Economist, also a fellow at the Said School of Business at Oxford University, and also has a podcast called Babbage. Now, Ken, I've been reading The Economist since, I guess, what they used to say I was in short pants, right? I used to have, it came in uh, newsprint. It actually had like, before it wasn't even shiny. <laughs> this is a long time ago. So it's, it's great to have someone from The Economist on the show. But it's also great because I remember you came out with this book called Big Data back in 2012 or 13. It's been, I guess, about a decade. And this book was, I think, a little bit ahead of its time. It kind of really made the case for why big data was going to change the world. It inspired me to teach a course on big data at the business school here at Berkeley. But now you have a new book, and it's called Framers that you've co-authored. And I think framers, what, what you're doing is, in some sense, you're highlighting some of the limits of what we can do with machine learning, right? I mean, we've learned so much about the brain. We've learned so much about what makes human thinking unique. I think in part because we've really pushed the, the limits of what we can do with machine learning. So, so I'm interested, first of all, like, did you kind of come to this realization in part later? Or did you, because I always think of economists as being the kinds of folks that are particularly good at maybe switching frames, maybe I'm overestimating how good they are at it, but there's something inherent in the nature of being an economist that makes you more familiar with the construction of models, makes you more familiar with different approaches to understanding social phenomenon. So do you think of yourself as always having been an unconscious framer and it was only recently that you kind of put some uh, structure around it? Is that a way to think about how you, this book came about? These are all really good questions. And first I should say, thank you very much. What an honor and a pleasure it is to be on the show on Siloed. It's an amazing podcast and I'm so pleased that I can contribute to it. I would question in great puzzlement the idea that economists might be good framers. I actually look at the profession and think actually this is the right due to a framing revolution that's not quite there yet. On the other hand, I strongly believe that everyone is a good framer. We've been doing it since we've been toddlers. That's almost how we define our intellect and how we can actually reason through problems and, and, and have long-term planning and strategize and actually interact in the world as it is. We wouldn't be able to do it if we couldn't frame. And people who have had brain damage in certain parts of the brain are unable to say, imagine alternative scenarios, which showing we can actually find where this capability takes place from a, from a physical standpoint, neurologically. So let's start with like the, at the very core and the very basic of your question, because it really strikes to the heart of the project that me and my co-authors were trying to do. And you put your finger on it, which is we wrote a book about data and the power of information and how if we harness data in a new way, because we had so much more of it, we could actually do entirely new things that would be very beneficial for humankind. We still believe that. However, we always understood, it was always sort of implicit in our analysis. And if people didn't just read the title, but read the book, which you clearly have done, but sadly, so many other people haven't, they would have known that we always understood that data exists in a model and that would be a statistical model if you're running an analysis, 
But before that, it exists in a mental model. In fact, the very nature of having data implies that you bothered to collect something that was informational about the world itself and rendering it into an alphanumeric, i.e. data format, to therefore you can use it and reuse it and extract some form of extra value, external value from it that was latent in it because there was an information quotient into the data itself. But that existed in a model at its core, a mental model. This was so implicit, we didn't need to shout about it and say it, but we got beaten up by people and some critics who felt like, hey, you know, you can't just trust the data, you need to look at the model that you have. So this in some ways is a response to that criticism, that malformed and misinformed criticism. The point though was a bigger one, which was a revolution has taken place in the last three decades around how people understand how researchers, particularly cognitive psychologists, Neurologists understand the importance of framing in society, that we can take this basic feature of cognition and transform it into a muscle, a tool that we can deliberately use to increase the alternatives that we see, to make better choices and get better outcomes, and that we must become better at framing and reframing our problems if we're to survive this century because the challenges are so unique and they're so difficult to think through. And to do that, we need to work with other people and be tolerant of a diversity of frames and accept a society of pluralism. And this is something that humans can do and that machines cannot do. AI cannot do this. So in a way, we have, if you will, reinterpreted classical, traditional 19th century British liberalism, liberal values, through the lens of cognitive science and noting a special unique skill that humans are good at and getting better at vis-a-vis the machine and the machine age, though we are the optimists and we are in favor of artificial intelligence, we're not critics of it, we are identifying a limitation of it. And that is the very core of the book. Well, I think there's a positive element and a normative element, right? So the positive element is you're describing sort of how how humans think, right? What is this kind of superpower that, that humans have, which is the ability to construct models, to build out frames and and potentially to kind of skip over frames and do what you call cognitive foraging. But I think, you know, there's a normative element too, which is that there are better and worse ways to think, right? Depending on the context, right? And to to some degree, what you're advocating is either that individuals develop this ability to kind of skip across multiple frames or that organizations and societies, if, if the individuals are going to be wedded to their frames, right, to have some process which allows you to harvest the insights that come from these different frames. So the positive element, right, maybe we can start with the positive element. This is describing a lot of what has come out of kind of decision theory and, and cognitive science in the last couple decades as we've learned more about how humans think. And, and I think when most people in that domain hear the word framing, they immediately think, oh, that's Kahneman Tversky, right? Framing is bad, right? Of course, Kahneman Tversky, they don't say that directly. They talk about kind of narrow framing or they talk about the the limitations of framing. But we've learned that framing and theory generation is really, you know, what makes the kind of human insight possible, right? So that's so, is that a recent, I mean, look, I think you could go back to Bacon or go back to anybody or Aristotle who's thought about thinking and they would say something like this. But what have we learned from the cognitive science literature in the last couple of decades that, that really highlights this? Yeah, so, so it's vast. And you're right to bring up Kahneman and Tversky. 
And it's true that they use framing. It's not a major component of their work, but they definitely use it, but they're using it as in a pejorative sense. We are using it in a different sense. But at its core, there is a similarity, and that is that the, the world is a jumble of information and sensations at all times. And it would otherwise be completely incohate and sort of an overwhelming, cognitively overwhelming, unless we pruned it in a very radical way. In effect, by expecting what is likely to happen, being surprised when it doesn't, but presuming as the norm things that happen as they should, that a dropped object will fall down, that when the wind blows, we will feel it as a sensation in our, in, uh, on our skin. If we didn't actually do that, if we didn't sort of widow all of the, the sensory information that was coming to us, we wouldn't be able to make sense of the world. It also gives us predictability. In our book, we identify these three features of a frame, which are causality, counterfactuals, and constraints. Causality is a basic sense of cause and effect of how the world works. Counterfactuals is this idea of asking what-if questions, playing the game of life two ticks ahead. And then constraints are taking these counterfactuals, these alternative realities, and making them bounded and limited, not limitless, not trying to think outside the box, which is a world's most odious metaphor for reasons we can get into later. And by doing so, we have this ability to size up situations and, and see the world and, and it just compresses information, makes it easier, makes it repeatable. We can abstract that way. We can generalize. And all of these things are virtues and they're great. And they, they make us actually really good at making decisions where Kahneman points out all of the ways in which humans are bad at making decisions by having cognitive biases like the anchoring effect or by having variability having noise and, and therefore making good and bad decisions that therefore are inconsistent. We actually take a different approach and we say, actually, human beings are really good at making decisions. That's how we bring people to the moon and back. We're, we're good at making decisions, but we can get better at making decisions. You know, the idea that we have this role for individuals to make decisions and then something for society and institutions. And that is deliberate as well, because it takes both, it takes a village. We need individuals to become smarter, to think about framing, to adopt a lexicon around it and a methodology around it in order to frame and reframe problems better. But we also need society to do better as well. We can train people to get better at framing. We already do. This is a function. This is not new, as you pointed out. This is something that people who have been thinking about cognition from Aristotle to Bacon and others have seen before and, and have, have identified. But it's been so obvious that we've taken it for granted. We've actually not put our finger on it. It has the finger has been put on it before by specialists, but not through the the grand hoi polloi, the grand public. There's a similarity though to big data here. When we wrote the book Big Data, we sort of knew in our Victor and I knew in our hearts that there was a a responsible sleight of hand taking place, a poetic license, which is we were identifying a feature of how to interact with information in reality that had been very well understood for 300 years from Simon Laplace, the father of the central limit theorem in statistics, from Galton, from Darwin, from Fisher, the grand statisticians. We were basically taking a technique that was part of the sciences and applying it to all areas of humanity. And to be honest, the idea of tracking things with data, for example, in a newsroom or in an email marketing campaign, which seems pretty obvious today, was anything but, or public policy, taking a, an intervention 
like an economic intervention, like a stimulus program, and tracking it with the data, and then being able to iterate with it, which is standard today, a decade ago was very unstandard. So we were taking something that was well-established and known in one domain, the sciences, and now applying it all throughout society. We're doing the same thing with framing and framers. We're taking something that's well understood by the cognitive psychologists and the behavioral economists, and we're now taking it out of that rarefied domain and bringing it to the public, saying, hey, we can all do this. Framing is done by elite commandos, by the world's best athletes, by important business executives with their business coaches. And we're telling you that we can all do that. Well, let's dig into this difference, right? And of course, a lot has happened since you wrote the book, Big Data, right? We've seen AlphaGo, right, do its thing, right? We've seen advances, particularly by Google and others. And so, you know, one, one critique of kind of standard machine learning is that it's inefficient, right? That it takes an enormous amount of data and an enormous amount of compute in order to play chess or to play Go. And so the human brain is just little bit more efficient. But the other critique is that, and you point this out in the big data book, is that all you can really do is understand correlation and you can't really understand causation. But of course, you know, we can automate experimentation and so forth to try to extract it. So is, is the main difference here one of, of efficiency? And it's just a question of, if we give machine learning enough firepower and sooner or later, it'll be just as good as, as human insight and discovery, or is it about the nature and structure of how humans think that the machines will never be able to replicate? Well, it's definitely the latter. And we can think about that and we'll be able to see that. The latter being, there is something unique to how humans think that machines will never be able to do. Certainly, you point out to, point to machine learning and machine learning will never be able to do. The foundation of machine learning is, as you pointed out, is data and is relying from lots and lots of data. It so happens that you do need a lot of data to train your algorithm. There's lots of, there's a debate in the field of over how much you need. Can you do quote unquote one-shot learning? Can you prune that? Are there, are there techniques to do that? There probably will be techniques. So you will have these sort of one-shot learning programs. And that sort of makes sense. And it seems like, oh, it would be a little bit like a child who's instructed not to touch the red hot coal. And if you tell the child once, don't touch it, they might never touch it and therefore they're spared. Okay. But that would be a misunderstanding of how humans think vis-a-vis -vis the machine. The machine would be following the instruction in that case. But of course, really what they're doing is they're learning over a vast quantity of data as if it was from experience. But at its core, it's data. The machine needs information. If it doesn't have the data, it doesn't have the information, it can't make a decision. It's paralyzed, it's sort of blind to anything that's outside of its sphere of data. Human beings don't have that limitation. Human beings don't need the data. If they don't have the information they need, they invent it. It's their imagination. So for example, when, the, when we had a conception of the earth and all of the information and the data of how the heavens and the celestial bodies moved, we put the earth at the center, because of course the human being would be, and we saw how the heavens had this radical swarming about with planets that had elliptical motions and retrograde actions, curly cues upon curly cues. 
Now, we created incredible maps that way, and we could uh, plot where Venus would be 20 years or 200 years later with great accuracy. But then we could actually change the model. We had no other information to go on, but we actually didn't put the Earth at the center of the universe. We made the Earth just one of multiple other planets. And then, instead of having, having these weird elliptical, elliptical, these retrograde motions, what you have instead is the spherical, in effect, elliptical paths of the orbits. The point is that we didn't have the data to tell us that. We could do that later with experiments, and then, of course, we actually put space probes in to actually see that. But what we had was a mental conception. Human beings are able to visualize things that don't exist. We, can, we don't have to run the experiment. We can run it in our minds, in our imaginations. The computers cannot do that. Artificial intelligence has no ability to conceptualize information that it doesn't have. It can only rely on information that it does have. That is the fundamental difference, that we are able to see things that are not there. And that's why we actually are very good at framers. In fact, we do this all the time. When we cross the street, we can imagine being plowed into by a beer truck, right? And so we're reticent. We can even do so only because we've heard it and not seen it. Or we might have what we consider an intuition for it. We do this in so many myriad ways of playing the game of life two ticks ahead that we take it for granted, but we shouldn't. And of course, in the sciences, these conceptions, these new ways of thinking about something or they happen infrequently, but that is the nature of scientific discovery, of imagining a world it might be like this, and then validating that hunch. Now, in, in terms of frames, I mean, frames can sometimes, you, know, you, you can talk in terms of models, talk in terms of theories, talk in terms of, of paradigms. But I think when, when people think about paradigms, they, they think about it's really more serial than parallel, right? In other words, they're inconsistent with one another, and you can really only... You, you know, have one paradigm in your mind at, at a time. And I think you're, you're emphasizing that when it comes to framing, we're continually doing it in parallel, right? We're approaching the same problem in, in multiple ways, and each way might illuminate uh, a slightly different aspect of a problem. And so a good thinker is someone who is capable of understanding the trade-offs, right? The costs and benefits of applying different frames to the same phenomenon. And is that a capacity that can be cultivated? Is there an ideal amount of this kind of cognitive foraging? I was thinking when I was reading this, I was thinking you were, uh, I think I'm thinking about parallels between, you know, the explore versus exploit dichotomy, right? If you have a, a frame, how far should you go with that frame to look for insight before you kind of switch out of it before you try out a different frame. I have a feeling like a lot of the scientists, a lot of scientific discovery has come about because, you know, you have these stubborn people that just refuse to, to get out of their theoretical framework and they just push it to the limits until it starts yielding some kind of insight. These are really great questions. And in fact, I, I wish we had this conversation before we published because there was a lot of information that we took out of the book and we would have been, we might have reinstated. We want just to make the book as concise as possible. But one thing was George Marsh's famous sort of duality of exploitation versus exploration. Let me take that in a second and first go back to the, the very beginning of the question, which was this idea of serial versus uh, parallel processing in terms of frames. And you're right to say that often we are very serial about it. But we do note at the end of the book with the great aphorism by F. Scott Fitzgerald, that the mark of the first-rate intelligence is to hold two contradictory thoughts in mind at the same time. 
there is a lot of cases of that. And in fact, we generate new frames by doing that. As you were talking, I was thinking about one, which is the notion of social entrepreneurship or philanthrocapitalism, if you know it. Here we understand philanthropy, we understand capitalism. In 1990, if we were to talk about it, very few people understood that you could fuse the two. In fact, it took the coining of the term philanthrocapitalism, the name of a book by a former colleague of mine, Matthew Bishop, to show that you can actually have philanthropies and foundations operating under capitalist principles, a little bit like a venture capital fund. Social entrepreneurship is the exact same thing as well. When Drucker first talked about it, he didn't even use that language. He didn't use the term because there was no way of explaining it. But I remember seeing young people fresh out of business schools who were creating NGOs in the early 1990s who had Drucker on the bookshelf. And that's when the penny dropped for me. Hey, there was this thing here. We didn't have a term. We, had to, we needed the term. So we're often taking these things that operated in serial and bring them together. The circular economy would be another maybe example of this. It's interesting that these are new trends as well that are fusing uh, two bedfellows that often didn't exist together. Particularly, you know, the, the two challenges of our generation, which would be environmentalism and climate change, and the, of the last war, so to speak, of the of the last generation, which was the Cold War, communism versus capitalism. How do we get the best for running our economy through market principles while also saving the world? So that's essential. What is next to your next question is, well, what is best? How do you know when you should stay or when you need to leave? And at what point do you explore versus exploit? There, there's no easy answers, right? It's a question of, is the frame you're in working for you, right? That's under question, right? There's a lot of doubt about that. Take environmentalism. If you're in the oil and gas industry, do you simply still dig up black goop from the bottom of the oceans? and try to sell it to people, or do you need to think about things differently? There, what, we're, what we have seen is that those very companies have all been shifting, not all, but almost all, shifting their emphasis into green technologies because they know it's gonna become more essential to them. But they had to explore that. They needed exploration before they can, they can divvy up uh, and then and settle on a path to pursue, but it, it took a new way of framing. There is no easy way to know if you need to reframe or not, or how you play with your frame. But it's really a question of, is it working for you or not? And if you're, if you're getting stymied by trying to find a solution, and there's no solution, and the problem's getting worse, it's obvious that you need to see the problem differently. You need to see the situation differently. And therefore, you need to probably either adjust your frame, but more importantly, probably discard it and adopt a new frame. The whole domain of, for example, um, open source software did just that. In the 80s and the early 90s, what they were trying to do was to use goodwill for people to ditch proprietary software and adopt this software system that was very opposed to intellectual property. And the big shift that happened, they called it copyleft instead of copyright. But the big shift was when they changed the nature of the contracts to say, no, 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 we're not going to be an affront to intellectual property. We're not going to be opposed to intellectual property. We're going to use intellectual property to enforce sharing of the software. We're very intellectual property friendly. In fact, we depend on it so the contributions can be shared all throughout the user community base, and we can all benefit this way. It, it dovetailed aligned with intellectual property, and that's what open source software in its modern instantiation, 
grew like rapeseed. Now, I think there's some forces that are working against you if you're trying to promote, you know, the cultivation of cognitive foraging. And one of them is cognitive stickiness. And I think you, you referenced this. It seems to be kind of human nature that once you find a, a frame that, that works, you're reluctant to abandon it. And you're probably also reluctant to acknowledge that, that it's not working. And, and maybe the way to make sure that you think it keeps working is that you kind of avoid trying to apply it in, in the circumstances that would highlight its lack of utility, right? And so you kind of stick to your, the, the domain in which you're operating. And, you know, I, I was thinking about car companies, right? So I'd spent a lot of time working with companies. And what, what I try to do is uh, do these very simple exercises, like just imagine your company as a software company, right? And not as a, say, a car company, like what would that mean to you? And it's just, it's just a, a reframing, but it's very difficult to get people to kind of, kind of think that way, right? It's very difficult to convince the, you know, CEO of a luxury car company that they need to think about what it would look like to be, you know, a software company that makes cars and not a car company that puts software in their cars, right? So on the one hand, why is it so difficult? And on the other hand, an outsider might look at that and say, well, who cares which way you look at it, right? I mean, that's sort of superficial to solving the problem. So, you know, number one, like, why would a simple reframing like that have such a huge impact? And then, you know, secondly, why do people kind of resist it so much? Yeah, let's start with the, the second part. Why do people resist it so much? Is it that they're cognitively lazy? And maybe that's a feature because of it's so prevalent. I think that, I think it's both things. I think we are inherently cognitively lazy. Not everyone. I think some people are more primed to being more dynamic. Stand-up comedians are probably the least cognitively, or good ones at least, are probably the least cognitively lazy in the world. They are. They thrive on newness, of changing their act, of, of developing things. And those who you've heard about over a long period of time have definitely done that. Where those who, who go, whose performance remains rather static, they haven't done that. I used to be the by invitation editor of The Economist, basically the op-ed editor. And we solicited from some of the world's most important minds articles on how the world was going to change after uh, COVID-19. And we published many of them, but far more we couldn't publish or we had to sort of nip in the bud or change radically because the thinking was so shallow. Not that these were shallow thinkers, but that for so many people, in the midst of lockdown, this unprecedented historic event in, in the history of the world, how the world was going to look was exactly what they had been saying for the last 15 years, and it just validated what they believed, whether it was in terms of online education or in terms of politics or in terms of healthcare and how to run a society. And it just seemed so inauthentic. It wasn't new. I think journalists maybe are a little... Are, maybe a little bit better at looking for, not all, but some looking for the new, embracing the new, being very comfortable in this intellectual tumult, in a tempest-tossed sea in which new ways of thinking are, are coming and going. At least I feel very comfortable and at ease in that environment where I think a lot of other people don't. Maybe an accountant wouldn't. Not only would a lawyer not, the legal profession actually has a doctrine in which it wants things to stay the same called stare decisis stay the decision, which is to say we would rather have a mediocre decision than a new decision, because at least we can all live with what is known rather than have to adapt to what is new. So that's a, a general sense of how people are probably cognitively lazy, and it helps them, because often you don't want to always be in a, in a new environment thinking in a completely new way. 
that you're just better off in staying where things are. That conservative approach of the elder, wise elder who says, not so fast, not so fast. Now, at the same time, there's a Theodore Levitt uh, great aphorism. Theodore Levitt, as you probably know, is the famous Harvard Business School professor from, what, 1950 to 1980, who uh, left his mark in, in multiple ways. But one in particular was a great aphorism, which is, people don't want a quarter-inch drill bit. They want a quarter-inch hole. Shifting the way in which companies think about their product, not in terms of what they're selling, but in terms of what the customer is buying. In one of the most celebrated Harvard Business Review articles that he wrote, he asked the question, what business are you in? And he poses the quandary at the outset, how is it that American railway companies went bankrupt in the 1970s? When actually he wrote in the 60s, so it was about the 60s and 70s, and later in the 70s, it would go bankrupt. If passenger traffic has all increased over the last few decades and cargo traffic has increased over the last few decades, how do they blow it? Why are they failing as businesses? And he says that although traffic has been increasing, the cargo has gone on trucks and the passengers have gone by airlines and that the railway companies misunderstood the business that they were in. They thought they were in the railroad business when they needed to understand that they were in the transportation business. So my injunction would be to the business leaders that are listening to both of us right now is for them to, to understand the importance of it because seeing things from a different way is a matter of corporate survival as well as personal survival. It's so essential because if you misunderstand how you conceptualize the situation, you miss opportunities and you might even see that you actually do poorly for yourself in your life. Yeah, I mean, I, I think being in the, in the education business that just getting somebody to think in a slightly different way, a different frame, like you describe, and I use that quote from Ted Levitt all the time, it can do a, add a lot more value than a 200-page McKinsey report, right? <laughs> which, which uh, you know, is just sort of telling you how to incrementally do better what you're kind of already doing in, in many cases, not to knock McKinsey or anybody. But I do think that getting to first principles, and you describe, right, in Elon Musk, right, and how, you know, he approached the whole idea of, you know, rockets that could return to Earth. And it reminded me of kind of the Fosbury flop, right, which is an example that we always use in, in education. And it's like, you know, if you stop thinking, like, how can I do this incrementally better? But what am I really trying to do? I'm trying to get over the dang bar. <laughs> like, let's just start from, you know, let's just go back to the beginning and say, are, you know, is there a completely different way to think about getting over this bar? rather than is there a way that I can increase my scissor jump in a slightly better way? But that's hard, right? I mean, it's, it, it's kind of, it, fe it feels like going backwards to kind of go back to, to first principles for many people, right? It's true. And also the question is, well, do we reward it, right? I know that in typically in business, well, in, in large corporations, they don't reward it. In fact, there's no place to actually make the case for it. Like, what meet, what, when is a boss held a meeting that says, how do we reimagine our business? Actually, it turns out that more recently, in the last decade or so, two decades, companies have been holding meetings. How do we re, you know, reimagine our business? Because it has become essential. But often, as we all know, they don't really mean it. They really mean, how do we incrementally improve our sales by a, a decimal point so that we can meet next quarter's numbers? And the quarterly reporting cycle is a killer. I think a lot of great smart executives have been sort of beaten, beaten down by society 
simply because of the annual budgeting cycle. I know I personally have where, you know, if you have an amazing idea in June, good luck, right? If it's going to cost half a million dollars, you got to make the case in the fall to get it approved in March, to touch it on April 1st. And it's going to be a small little, it's going to be trickled out over the course of maybe two quarters, three quarters. And so you have to wait a full fiscal year until June, until you're really up and running. By that time, how many other competitors are going to be there? In fact, one reason why startups can steal a march on larger companies is because they can allocate resources more quickly than that. And that 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 corporate, in this case, budgeting cycle dampens the fresh thinking, the, the, the novel thinking, that if you're not rewarded and it's not sort of in the system, I guess the bloodstream of how you perform as an executive in your 20s and early 30s, by the time you're in your late 30s and you've touched a little bit of authority and responsibility and, and a little bit more income and a business class lounges, what's the likelihood that you're going to risk that by coming up with a new idea? I mean, unless you're already in a venture-backed startup, probably not. So we do such a terrible job as society at encouraging that reframing and that fresh thinking. We need to get better at it. It is such a conundrum, but it is so essential. And some sectors of the economy don't do so badly at it, right? On the other hand, I would point out that even startup companies, once they find something that works, they're really loath to change it as well. So that's not the answer. And again, in some instances, that's not such a bad thing. The companies, it's interesting. People sometimes ask, well, why is it that some companies have done incredibly well, like Amazon, going from thing to thing to thing, while others haven't have really lost their mojos, uh, Sony being an example of, of one great electronics company that's done poorly, but there's so many other examples. And one element, I think, to that is if the founder is still the CEO, when, you've, when you have a boss and an owner, that person, he or she, can make changes, has the license to reimagine things and do things differently and make the case for it. It's not simply that everyone just are yes men and women who, say, who just agree to it. In fact, there's probably going to be a fractious debate. But they have the ability to re-see things and pursue opportunities that when you are a salaryman CEO, if you will, you don't have that ability to do. So we need to change the incentives. And that is going to be really hard. What investor is going to, what investor would be willing to tell AT&T to go into packet switching? Like, no, the widows and orphans that were owning AT&T shares were in this is the 80s and 90s, were very happy with their little dividend coming down, trickling down that they could then bring to the bank in their purse and collect from the bank teller. So it's, it's a conundrum that I don't see an obvious answer to in terms of a solution. But isn't there, I mean, a, a deeper discomfort with kind of perspectivism? So, for instance, you know, in business school, the answer to every question is it, it depends. And, you know, in law school, the answer to every question is it depends. And people were very frustrated with this. They don't want it to depend. I mean, Harry Truman said, find me a, a one-handed economist, right? I, I don't, I don't want to hear all these different approaches. And to some extent, you know, the more approaches you, you have at some point, doesn't it just become gray mud? where you, you don't take a position. This, isn't this why we, in the Middle Ages, would bury the actors and the lawyers outside of the city walls because they, you know, they're capable of, of taking on all these different perspectives? Don't we want somebody to plant a flag and, and say, hey, you know, this is, this is my way of looking at things and I'm going to stick with it? Don't we tend to respect those people more as having kind of integrity and, and the courage of their convictions? Of course, what you've just described is populism versus liberalism. So let me dwell on this. I don't, I don't think you expected the conversation to go there, but of course I'm going to take it there, which is who's really certain of their facts? 
the people who are the least competent to make a decision on an issue, right? We know that from first cognitive psychology that the intensity of, of adherence to a belief uh, is greater when you actually are the least informed about something. But more importantly, this sort of emotional response, this sort of the legitimacy and the forcefulness of coming to a, a singular decision on by oneself is Rousseauian, right? It's, the, it's this emotional man who can see the world as it should be, as nature says, and when they have this gumption, feels compelled to pursue it. That's Donald Trump. That's Bolsonaro, right? That's Erdogan. That's Orban. They, they, we don't need no stinking judges, right? We don't need no stinking badges. The liberal, the, the person, now it's liberal with lowercase, well, it's uppercase and lowercase liberal. Work it out. The, the liberal dilemma, if you will, is that, that we are people who take both sides in an argument. Right? Well, why? Because of perspectivism, as you pointed out. And the reason why is because the world is complicated, but there are multiple perspectives to see things. And actually, if we work with, our, with different perspectives, we might get to better answers. It might take longer to get, that, to get a better answer, but it's certainly better than the alternative. I could be so certain that the response to the environment is to actually disband the EPA. After all, Donald, that's not far from what Donald Trump tried to do. The, but that would be the wrong response, right? That would ignore the complications that come from perspectivism to say that, hey, we need a strong economy and we also need a vibrant uh, environment that is protected. And how can we have it both ways? Because if we choose, we can't choose one, we can't choose the other. And of course, the status quo is leading towards, you know, this collecting a penny for a pound of destruction to the environment, and that's not going to be sustainable. So. There's no way out other than to have multiple perspectives, have multiple frames, to tolerate multiple frames, and to create an environment that celebrates a diversity of frames and encourages a clash of frames. That's essential. That tension is really hard. When you're in a meeting and you've got different people seeing a problem and arguing over it, Trust me, it's not easy to manage it. It's not easy to be in it and to argue your case, particularly when the person is, is higher in the hierarchy than you. But it's going to lead to a better outcome. The companies where, they, where everyone is sort of has, has a all nod in unison and march in lockstep might be marching in the wrong direction. Trust me, at Kodak, they all understood what was happening and they all marched over a cliff. You know, trying to milk print revenues and print photography revenues as law and development of, of film as long as they could. At Fujifilm in Japan, something different took place. There was a boardroom coup, well, if you will, a management board, an executive leadership committee level board in which one guy who was just happened to be almost like a street brawler of a business person, but came from the very unsexy division of the chemicals division and not from the princely rich and five-star print development film division basically said, you have had a decade to respond to this crisis. This is about year 2000. You've had a decade to respond to this crisis and you have not done so. So it's game over. It's time's up. We need to reorient the business and it's got to be around me. He got the support of the others around him. This is very atypical in a Japanese company, as you can all imagine. And sure enough, he reoriented the company around chemicals. He realized, what are we good at? We're good at film and preservation of film, and film is made out of collagen. What else is made out of collagen? Human skin. Now, if you go to luxury products and beauty products in Japan and you look behind the label, you'll see that the logo of Fujifilm is in it. 
And the reason why is because they are actually a high-end chemicals provider for skincare, women's skincare in Japan. Now, I want to talk a little bit about education because, you know, you do talk a bit about the case method, right? And how the case method is, it's a different way of learning, right? I mean, it's, you know, you're taking a bunch of different approaches to similar phenomenon, sort of tangentially. You're not laying out a series of, of steps in, in deductive logic from first principles, right? From axioms, you know, you're, you're actually looking at things from different perspectives, stimulating conversations. And then you also talk a bit about kind of learning by teaching. And, and I was wondering if you could talk a bit about that, because, you know, I've certainly found in my life that if I want to learn about something, I sign up to teach a course on it. And that's kind of how, that's kind of how I learn. And when I encourage my students to learn something, I say, look, get in a group and start teaching each other. And, and I've had some you know, wonderful graduate classes where the professor would basically divvy up the reading list among the different students. And then we would get up and summarize the, the, the research to our, our classmates. And I always found that to be a really powerful way to learn as a collective and individual exercise. So could you talk a bit about, you know, what you're seeing educationally? This is not just also, of course, for formal education. This is something that you can apply in, in your life more broadly. Yeah, it's a great question. So the, there's great research uh, by Tanya Lombroso at Princeton, who's a cognitive psychologist, who notes that people learn better when they have to explain why they came to an answer rather than just coming to an answer, that they make better decisions by dint of actually trying to identify causality, we make better decisions and we learn what we're actually working with far better. It's a really interesting finding. Why that should be the case, we can sort of speculate that maybe there's a different mental activity than just reasoning through a problem, but then having to sort of explain it. And so that's in effect a cognitive science or research-oriented and empirical reason and what sort of demonstration of why teaching something helps you learn it better and understand it better than just simply studying it and trying to understand it. I do the same sort of thing when I have to sort of give a talk or have to pitch something in a news meeting or even just writing an article. The very basis of forcing myself to reason through it goes, when I go beyond that, it, it finally sticks to me rather than when I just simply try to read it and then think I understand something. But you point to a, a, a more, a deeper and more interesting element to this as well, which is in the case study, what is going on there? What are we actually asking the students to learn? And how does teaching play a role in that? As you know, in the book, we have a, a lovely vignette about Joel Podolny, who uh, was the former dean at the Yale School of Management and now runs Apple University. So Joel Podolny, who was the former uh, dean of the Yale School of Management, who Steve Jobs plucked from that position at a very young age, under 40, to lead Apple University. At Yale, he had created a form of, of teaching the case study, which was called team teaching. What he wanted to do was not have the sage on, on the stage, simply telling people the answer, but wanted a multiplicity of frames to be represented, have different and contradictory ways of seeing the, the problem and therefore coming to different and more novel solutions to them. And of course, it's interesting that Steve Jobs should decide that he was the right person to lead Apple University in which they trained the young executives of Apple to take on greater responsibility because they're such an amazing company. And perhaps one reason why is because the point of education there is not to 
come up with the answer because for most things, there is no single answer, which is the answer. It's really about seeing the problem differently and therefore coming up with more interesting, novel, and better answers. Now, I think you you highlight um, in the big picture that there are these two kind of movements out there, which are in many ways threatening to this idea of perspective taking at the social level. One is this big data approach, right? Where, you know, minority reports, right? Where, you know, the machines take over. And I, I think a lot of people highlight that threat. And then there's this emotionalism, right? Which you, you referenced, it's kind of like a, a populism. And it's this perspectivism, which I guess you could also call kind of liberalism, which is sort of sitting in the middle, trying to keep these two threats at bay. Could you talk a bit about that? I mean, I think that a lot of people are concerned about the future of public discourse and, and the concern that public discourse has devolved into kind of shouting matches and, and so forth. And, you know, we don't really have constructive public dialogue either in legislatures or in the public square or in, even in universities at some level. What does it take, right? What do you need to have? Is it, is it simply that you need to have individuals that are capable of understanding the, the limits of their frames? Or can you have institutions which support a whole bunch of, you know, strongly held frameworks? Or is, is the bulwark against the devolution of this discourse necessarily individuals that, that have the capacity for perspective taking? We are in a, a you put your finger on a really difficult issue. I think we're in a, we're in a, a very peculiar situation in world history. And it's not clear what is actually happening, why it's happening and what the solution is. If I was to try to explain it, I would say it's a crisis of epistemology. That it's, there is a form of information nihilism taking place in a way that it feels different than what we've felt before. So let me explain what we see what was before and why it's novel. So what we have is less of, we lack a gravity to information and to fact. It's not just that there is superstition alongside fact. That was the case uh, during Kepler's day in the late 1600s, in which he had to leave the court in Denmark or actually in Germany and go back home to defend his mother against charges of witchcraft which was a capital crime. So he had to defend his mother so that she wouldn't be killed by the state for being a witch, the fellow who was sort of plot, tracking planetary motion and, and creating the, you know, sort of putting the point on the Copernican system. So how interesting is the contrast and the juxtaposition. So when we had the McCarthy hearings, because people were shouting and, and calling their political enemies a communist, when Arthur Miller was forced to testify at the House uh, Committee on Un-American Activities, he immediately drove up from Washington and drove past New York and drove to Salem, Massachusetts, did his research, and then wrote the crucible about the Salem witch trials. So it reminds us that this isn't novel, that this idea of pointing to people's enemies without any facts has been with us for a very long time. But then what? please, dear God, explains the fact that one political party in the United States is calling the politicians of another political party pedophiles and groomers as a acceptable level of 
political discourse without any evidence, without any facts. It just, to me, it is so nonsensical. It's so that it feels like a helium balloon floating up helter-skelter into the air, that there's no, if you will, fundamental, foundational gravity to fact, information, empirical evidence, and that you have tens of millions of people who are willing to vote for the politicians of that party who are doing it. How people could do that is seems so outside the norm and beyond the, the cognitive contours of all that we think we understand. It's just baffling to me, but also terrifying to me in the same way that if you find yourself in a ring with someone who does martial arts or a boxer, you have a sort of mental model of how you need to respond, right? But if you see a wild, drunken person coming at you on the road, now it's actually, a, it's you're a little bit more frightened. And the reason why is because of the random, violent nature of what's happening, that you don't have a mental model for it, that it can come at you in a, in a very different way. We are in this, in a universe right now where facts have become not, they've not that they've become besmirched, but they don't hold any weight anymore. And to me, that's actually, that, that terrorizes me, that, or I should say that terrifies me. In the book, we refer to the idea of the rationalists and the emotionalists. The emotionalists are the people like the, the populists who, like Bolsonaro in Brazil, who just by dint of utter, his utterance believes that he has the right answer because the, the integrity of strength of opinion and verve is its own justification of rightness. And then on the other side, you have the rationalists, the hyper-rationalists, who believe that in fact, humans are really bad at making decisions, and therefore we should trust algorithms that are better at making decisions. And we say that both sides have it wrong, that it's not that we need this world of algorithms making decisions because humans aren't any good at it, nor is it a world where humans should just rely on their primal instincts to make decisions. What we need to do is be more methodical and we need to frame situations better and reframe them where we can and adjust our frames if we need to. But we're not there right now. I think the, the bigger challenge that we have is at the substructure of this. How do we handle a world in which there's this sort of nihilistic environment where information lacks any power, any meaning, any purpose? Well, I mean, I think that certainly there's the larger public domain, but then there's sort of the narrower domain of among the intelligentsia, you know, among the academics and so forth. One, one would think that if that world were able to defend discourse, that there would be kind of hope for the world. But do you, do you think that even within that domain of kind of journalism and academia, there's maybe limitations on the capacity for perspective taking. I mean, I find even in educated circles, people are very quick to dismiss the opinions of others and the perspectives of others. And they're almost unwilling to try them on just for size. Even in my classrooms, oftentimes, if I ask a student to argue a particular position, which is standard fare in, in a business or a law school, people will, will say, well, hold on a second. You know, I, I don't feel comfortable, you know, making that argument. And then the idea is, well, yeah, precisely. Like that's exactly why I want you to do it. Right. Because it makes you feel uncomfortable. But I, I think even within kind of educated circles, people are, are kind of you know reluctant to look at the world through other people's eyes. Is that ultimately the, if kind of the educated elite are 
suspicious of kind of liberal perspectivism. Is that the real concern? Is that is that when we really have to, you know, pack our bags and, and, and go to the hills? Isn't it interesting that people are bristling in 2022 of trying to adopt the position of other people to walk in their shoes, to see things through their lens. You wouldn't have expected that, right? We, we think that we were trained all throughout the 20th century to do just that. In fact, that was a hallmark of how our educational systems took place, that we could actually argue both sides of the case. In fact, we were a great pedagogical tool in, in essay writing is to be able to restate the opponent's argument you know, as good, if not better than the way that they've made it for the purpose of their, for then explaining the flaw in it. It's a very John Stuart Millian, uh, you know, liberalistic approach that even the, not only is the nature of argument beneficial because we can actually get to the right answer, but hearing the wrong argument makes me better because it forces me to improve my arguments, right? But that's not where we're at. People are, are rejecting that so foundationally that they don't even want to attempt to see things in so through someone else's eyes because they feel like it's an affront to their values. And cancel culture, of course, is just that, where you actually willingly blind yourself to what's being said by someone else, that, that your precious ears can't deign to hear the views of someone else, whether it's because, it, because even the, the most modest infraction from the way that you think is some sort of violation of all that is cosmologically right in the world. How do you overcome that, right? I think what we're devolving into is, a, is an environment in which we have these small sects that will be open-minded and will be liberal, if you will. And it'll be a little bit like monks in a cloister who are, if you will, literate. But in this case, they're sort of more tolerant. But they're the minority and it, it's a tight group. Will they have any influence? Will they have any ability to shape uh, the future direction of the world? Or will we go from one extreme of intolerance to another extreme of intolerance? I think that's in the balance right now. I mean, that is the central question. It's clear how I've, where I fall on this, which I, I don't want to go, I don't want one extreme or, or another extreme. I don't think either extremes have the answer. But even if there's one extreme that I happen to feel is closer to the right answer, better, for human dignity, for human freedom, and for the welfare of others than another, I don't want that extreme either, because that's not going to be the answer. It's not going to be the full answer. Having this singular mindset itself is the problem. What we need is a diversity of mindsets, but we're not getting that. Well, now a lot of people will pin the blame on kind of social media, right? And Right now, as we speak, we, Elon Musk has just uh, finished his, completed his acquisition of Twitter, and he has argued that, you know, he's going to make it more of a, of a public forum, right? Now, I'm not sure how much of a public forum you can have with 40 characters and so forth, but is there some truth to that? Is, is, the so, is social media, you know, with echo chambers to blame, is this just like the arrival of the, you know, Gutenberg press? It's a, it's a technological shock that people haven't quite figured out. Because you can also point to other evidence. I mean, if I look at The Economist, I think when I first started subscribing to The Economist, there was only a couple thousand people in the United States that read it, and now it's up to millions of people. So as, as an historian, I'm always reluctant to, you know, look at some subjective perception of a trend and, and then 
get all worried about it when it might actually be just a, you know, it might be a partial view of things. Is, are, are we really evolving into echo chambers or, or is the, I mean, people weren't that educated in the 1950s and 60s in the glory days of the press. Yeah, I think you're right to be worried. And I think you're right to point to social media as a sort of Gutenberg-like shock. We might naively think that our information sphere can't be that important. It can't change things so much that it must be other factors as well. And I think it's usually a complication of multiple factors. But we do have to remember that the Gutenberg press was responsible for the Reformation, which itself was also responsible for the unwinding of the monarchy. And the religious wars, of course. Yeah, of course. But by Reformation, you know, it opens the door for, for the religious wars. So if a change in the information sphere does change how people not only communicate, think, but also how they live, what they believe and what they do and how society develops. So social media, strangely, even though it's only, what, 15 years old or so, 10 years old, has had a similar impact in ways that we're just trying to understand and, and figuring out. It's not just social media. I think mobile phones, as well as just the internet, of being able to unify public action in a way, finding communities of interest that seem to be niche before, but now don't seem niche when you are agglomerated with maybe a thousand other people who think just like you do, have the same sort of values, maybe perhaps very weird and noxious values, but you now are able to identify them and rally together as a support and as a thing, as a movement where before you couldn't because it was so, the world was so disaggregated, you'd never be able to identify people who would be proud boys or oath keepers or whatever they would happen to be. So altogether, I think this is, and then of course, online sort of vigilanteism with social media and the sort of the herd mentality that we're sort of creating it on a global scale is, I think, deeply problematic. You teased Twitter for how much information and discourse can you really have in, in 240 characters. And there's a deeper, more serious point to it, which is, you're right, the idea of critical thinking and deep thought in solitude and reasoning through problems is disappearing. And actually, the response to Elon Musk buying Twitter is a really good example. I was so surprised at how many people had a knee-jerk, visceral reaction against it. Rather than weighing the situation and thinking about it in a more thoughtful and complicated way, what is he trying to do? When he says free speech, what does he mean by that? He's a phenomenally good business executive who seems to be excellent at choosing managers and getting the best from them. It looks, and Twitter has been really dormant as a company in terms of its dynamism for a decade for problems with the, the CEO and the board, which are well known. Maybe this is it's probably going to be, I'm very optimistic, I think it's going to be a really interesting thing to see how it innovates and, and develops because it's been sort of encased in amber for the last decade where other places like Snapchat and, and Instagram and, and Facebook itself have completely developed over the last decade. So one can be optimistic about that. But it's interesting that people didn't see that, that in, the, in those 240 characters, they just sort of hardened their positions and all agreed with each other with that echo chamber. So I'm really wary of it. And, I, and my solution personally has been to sort of spend as little time on social media as I possibly can. Uh, it's not on my phone. Anything is on my phone, for example. And so I don't look at it late at night. 
uh, or when in those mo idle moments, I've deliberately not done that because I want to think differently in a very David Foster Wallace or Cal Newport way. Uh, two great, one is a, a great novelist who sadly committed suicide about a decade ago. And Cal Newport is a, an academic and a phenomenal writer. And both of them think about thinking. And I have, it, it takes hard work to deliberately pull yourself away from the information commons that we live in, because that's sort of the lifeblood of how we interact with everyone these days. But I am going old school in that respect, because I think it's so essential that I don't clutter my mind with the sort of pollution that I'm getting from social media to things that are just more substantial and weighty, that I put my limited capacity of thinking and limited time on earth to things that are just weightier and more substantial. Now, you, you highlight the importance of kind of stories and, and theater, and you say that narratives, stories, theater, these are actually more effective in many ways at getting people to, you know, rethink their perspectives on, on the world. Do we need kind of new myths, new stories, new types of narratives that would help us to take a better view of this type of world that you're, you're advocating, right? I mean, it, it seems like the, you know, the best, the best stories don't sort of glorify <laughs> The, 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 you know, the person who is a cognitive forager, right? It's hard to find good narratives where the hero is, is the cognitive forager. Although we do have lots of stories where the hero is a discoverer, someone who gains new insights through some heroic action. What a nice question. I don't think we need new stories and new myths. I think we need to appreciate the ones that we have and rediscover them and rediscover new dimensions to them. I also slightly disagree in a very respectful way of this idea that our current myths and stories don't have cognitive foragers. I think actually many times they do. Of course, we could probably point to the great epics of being about cognitive foraging, but let me leave that aside because I think there's things that are closer to home that would be interesting to consider. I mean, I think Hamlet is probably, Hamlet is the most famous uh, cognitive forager in literature, right? How so? I mean, you know, he's, he's capable of taking so many different perspectives. He's like that character in, in the Daniel Dennett story, right? Where he's uh, capable of deciding which framework or perspective is the one that he needs to act upon. Hamlet's a whiny brat, right? Who just doesn't know what he wants to do. So I, I think we could, we could argue uh, Hamlet, whether adolescent angst or, you know, or cognitive reframer par excellence. Maybe Odysseus is a better example. Let me give two, two others that are closer to home as a way of thinking about it. In the novels of Graham Greene, right, what we have is moral ambiguity, right? What we have in The Quiet American is a middle-aged British journalist who is looking upon The Quiet American, an American diplomat, and doesn't believe there's really anyone who is white and black. In the in, in good and evil in uh, 1950s Vietnam, whether it's the French, whether it's the Vietnamese, whether it's the communists, whether it's the Americans. And so it forces us to see it from multiple perspectives. The, the, the phenomenal spy novels of John le Carre, where uh, I'm thinking in particular of the spy who came in from the cold, right? Alex Lena is someone who is fighting the Cold War, doing his duty for Britain. But he has two adversaries uh, in the East German spy service 
one who is a former Nazi and one who is Jewish. And there's moral ambiguity riven all throughout these books. So I think that, that it forces us to confront different ways of seeing the world, not knowing who's the hero and who's not. Not all books do that, right? But certainly in the, in the novels of, of J.K. Rowling, we get that as well. I think there were really seeing different ways of framing things. When Hermione creates the house elf liberation movement, right? And all of her classmates, Ron and Harry, laugh at her for it and think it's absolutely preposterous. These are lovely ways in which we, and of course, you can't see the house elf liberation movement and not think of the Palestine, Palestinian liberation movement, the PLO, which was, I'm sure, was deliberate. The, these are great ways in which we train ourselves, become better at framing and reframing problems and tolerating and appreciating other people's frames. So the, I what I would urge is that we become better at rereading stories and narratives in this way. Of course, as Joseph Campbell told us, the hero has a thousand faces. Yeah, no, I, I fundamentally agree with you. I think that, you know, reading fiction and, and watching theater is is extremely important part of what it means to be a thinker and to be, be a human. And I don't, I'm not sure what the evidence is, but I think that consumption of books is, is pretty low in most, uh, most societies and consumption of kind of long form journalism is also kind of fairly, fairly low. And so do you think that in order to develop a, a flexible mindset, one needs to have the capacity to consume kind of long form content, right? Is, is there something about the, the ability to sustain your attention over a long period of time that sharpens one's cognitive uh, abilities? And to get back to a point that you were making earlier, if people are, you know, stressed, right? They're under stress because of the pandemic or because of the, the fear that they are exposed to throughout, you know, media, it makes it more difficult for them to consume this long form or to sustain long bouts of attention. And that's inevitably going to reduce their capacity to think uh, in, a, in a perspectival way. You know, my, my heart as a modern wants me to say, it's not that essential. And my heart as a, as to be modern and youthful and thoughtful and sort of of the moment think to think, you know what, all, only old crotchety people think that you need long form media in order to be able to develop the kind of capabilities to understand complexity and nuance and detail. The, what I want to say, William Verskovitz, if I've got his name correctly, the author of Excellent Sheep referred to as, in his essay, Leadership and Solitude, that idea of solitude, of being alone with one eye, one's ideas in order to develop it and understand it and, and learn from oneself what one is thinking. I'd like, really, really like to be sort of the gazelle in this discussion and say, oh, Greg, come on, you know, okay, Boomer, no, you can, we can do this. All we need is vertical video for, for 60 seconds, and we're going to be equipped to make reasoned decisions about the world that we're in. But I can't do that. I actually agree with you that there is something about the long form and we could discuss what is long and what is not. I don't think it's war and peace, you know, multi-volume is probably about about a thousand pages or so I don't or even Cervantes which is probably about 600 pages all you need is all you need is 200 pages right yeah exactly well you know in fact well, you can listen to the audiobook the um love the plug but no I do think you need um sort of this temporal ability of concentration sustained concentration in order to unfold ideas that would not be the first ones that you would get that would be just not the apparent but what's behind it 
all that is in, that is is invisible to the eye. All that is essential is invis- invisible to the eye, as, as Saint Exupéry put it. So, what do we do about that if we're in a world that's increasingly less literate and ha- has a shorter attention span? What does it mean in that environment where tomorrow's leaders are going to have to deal with nuclear weapons? In, in that environment, it looks really badly, right? It, I don't think we are we're mentally equipped. It doesn't seem to me where we are today that we're mentally equipped to the world. 10, 20, 30, 40 years from now, if we are losing a very classical way in which many people, many humans have made decisions by learning over time through the the ponderous, effortful, and self-discipline of study and reflection. On the other hand, to to be a bit optimistic about it, the trend towards meditation uh, in the West and around the world is deeply interesting because it's showing that people are not only exercising and, and mindfulness in general, not only exercising their bodies, which is the great trend in the 20th century, like Thomas Jefferson never went for a jog, right? But of course, you know, Nicolas Sarkozy was always smiling and jogging with his prime minister, Francis Fillon. Well, he, he rode horses. Uh, fair, fair enough, but it's still different. He didn't lift dumbbells. I mean, they, they might have been active, but physical fitness wasn't a thing. But of course, it, it was by the second half of the 20th century throughout the mainstream society. So too now, mindfulness and meditation and meditation apps is, and I think that's a really interesting development. And I'm, I wonder where that is going to go, because it certainly will go somewhere special and it'll be important. Whether we all just become self-obsessed and then become even more egotistical will be in question, but maybe we'll have a, there'll be a group of people who will go beyond that and see sort of a, a, a eternal solidarity with their brothers and sisters around them. That they would not not otherwise have cottoned onto were it not for those long-term moments of reflection. And you can even imagine that people in the spin cycles and that their Peloton classes might be thinking this as well. So I don't think all is lost. I think it's to be seen uh, how important it is and what happens if we lose some of that long-term reflection. Well, I agree. I think there are a lot of people that are seeking out that long-form reflection. People are seeking out meditation. And also people are seeking out disagreement, right? I always tell my students, you know, if everyone, if your friends all agree with you, then it's time for new friends. And I think people are starting to see the the wisdom in that. So Ken, thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. The latest book that you've co-authored is called Framers, but don't forget, right? Big data. When I was rereading this in, in preparation for today's talk, it reminded me how many of the stories that you had in this book that I've stolen over the years and inserted into my my lectures. And so I appreciate, keep going back to that well for years to come. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much. It was a real honor. And I'm so pleased that we could chat. The best thing that an author can have is a good reader. And I really am grateful that you've taken the time to think so deeply about the book and that we could actually share our interest in these topics together and with your audience. So thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.